when do you know? When do you know it's time to move on, to let go? When it's the right moment to take charge of your life? When do you know? It's my 21st birthday and I'm spending it the same way I spent my 20th, alone, in space. Outer moons, almost there. I don't mind the long flights. I like my own company, I'm used to it. It feels comfortable. Until it becomes uncomfortable. Mayday, mayday, I'm under attack. The fighters appear from nowhere. Two short-range flyers with added firepower. I recognize the lines, but they've been modified. Mounted gun turrets and lightning bolts etched down the sides. Stolen ships. Repeat, mayday. My radar shows a galactic protectorate vessel less than 50,000 kilometers away. Mayday, please acknowledge. No, wait, it's gone? Guidance jets destroyed. They've avoided the cargo. Whoever they are, they know what they're doing. I'm in the moon's pull, nothing I can do. Wait, the last possible second. Then pull up the nose, hammer reverse thrust. If I get this right, the cargo pods should absorb the impact. Lucky it's less than 0.6 G, otherwise I'd be buried. Now, what's still working? Atmosphere, of sort. Nitrogen, xenon, oxygen traces. I'll need an air pack if I go outside. What else? The radio. Mayday! Cargo vessel down, repeat. Vessel down, assistance required. The protectorate ship is back on the radar. Why aren't they answering? Reverse door core. I repeat. Go back. This area is under hostile control. You must get away. Your transmission is breaking up. Please confirm your position. I'm alone again. But not for long. A dozen men are falling from the sky. No, not falling. They're slower, controlled, in formation. A huge ship follows them down, a transporter. I see half a dozen open hatches along its hull, figures silhouetted inside. Six more men make the leap. Each one wears the same protective suit, a uniform, brown leather, matching gloves and boots. A bronze-crested helmet on every head, visors hiding their faces. As they approach, I see their pressing control pads on their chests. Silver flames blast from propulsion packs on their backs. Oh no. The Rocket Men. They land on my cargo pods and climb down. They set to work on the locks. I've heard the rumors. Pirates. Raiders, the scourge of the skies, fast and unpredictable as lightning. I thought there were stories to stop Greenhorns straying from the space lanes. Stay in there and you won't get hurt. Not until we're ready for target practice. 
The man jets back to the others. They're unloading my cargo. I don't know whether to believe him. I wait. Maybe I can reason with them. I strain to see past the pods. It looks like they've got prisoners. One's free. She's running. They're shooting at her. That's it. Who else is here to help? Quickly, I fix an oxygen can to my belt, connect the tube and fasten the mask over my face. I hit the release and the cockpit bubble slides back. I climb outside. Time to make a stand. There's always one. Oh. I told you, you should have stayed inside. You wet me on the ears, boy. No combat training. I drag myself painfully to my knees. The rocket man swings his fist into my face. Hard. <clears throat> he hasn't stopped. Not since his first punch to my stomach, while his men held my arms. He just keeps <laughs> going. <clears throat> Please! I'm sprawled in the dust, bloodied, beaten, panting for breath. I can't catch my breath. My oxygen can's detached, just out of reach. I stretch out. The damage they've done, Horace Smith and Daniel B. Wesson, Ever heard of the Wild West, boy? Found this little beauty in a cargo of antiques on my first run. Been a collector ever since. Model one, third issue. Four centuries old. Think about that. Of course, it's been customized. Of a man on Valiant Major makes the parts. Showed me how to dismantle and rebuild it. Polishing oil. It's simple. I like that. Seven chambers. Some bullets found homes already today. Some didn't, see? He shows me the cylinder. I stare blankly. He rotates it. Let's give Lady Luck a spin. He kneels on my chest, crushing the air from my lungs. Desperately, I try to lift my arms, but I've no strength left. When we scored the antiques, Captain Harper saw the look in my eyes, said I could have this keepsake if I hit a moving target. Threw two of the freighter crew off into space, I got them both. Bullseye! He rests the end of the gun on my forehead. It's cold. Privateer Van Cleef, he said when he gave me the ammo. You are what they used to call a sharpshooter. Probably regretted it later when I shot him between the eyes and took his ship. I squeeze my eyes tight shut. He presses the trigger. Lucky boy! Or maybe not. He stands. One hand adjusts his rocket controls, the other points the weapon at my right leg. Please! No! No! I feel pain like nothing I've ever experienced. My shin's been snapped and shattered. He takes aim at my left leg. Taps his controls again. Ah! I'd say. You'd have been spared this if the first one had been loaded. See what I mean about luck? 
It would take three months in a field hospital with synthetically grown bone and muscle before I'd walk again. All cargo stowed, flyers ready. You worry too much, Wallace. We'll still beat them. I don't know how they got here so fast. I'm gonna have to give you some lessons on tracking and monitoring. Of course, he was using his rocket to counteract the recoil from the gun. Low gravity, no air. No time for sleeping, boy. Let's finish this. I'm awake. He stands, points the gun. A flash of brown and silver, a fast-moving shape collides with Van Cleef, pushes him, sends him spinning away. Another rocket man stands in his place, bends towards me. I flinch away, but he lifts me, carefully. He flies me back to my ship. I'm lowered gently into the cockpit, barely conscious. The pain in my legs, unbearable. There's a jagged crack down the side of his helmet. He's outside as the glass bubble closes. Behind him, the man with the pistol is back, flying straight at my rescuer. My rocket man tries to dodge and takes a glancing impact from Van Cleef, who spins and hits the ground. I can't focus. I force my eyes open, ignore my throbbing legs. Concentrate. All I can do is watch. My savior hovers unsteadily, twisting in midair. His jetpack sparks. He's trying to regain control. Van Cleef lies on the ground. He has ample time to aim. Thought I'd finished you down on the planet, Ramirez. Never had to kill a man twice before. I try to shout a warning. The sound dies in my throat. Ramirez, the rocket man who saved me, turns takes a shot straight to the heart. A bullet hole blossoms in the leather beside the controls. His body jerks back and he lies suspended in the sky. Tiny jets of flame flash from his rocket. He floats up towards the vacuum of space. Dead. It's the last thing I remember before I lose consciousness. I wake days later in a field hospital on Valiant Minor. My ship's a wreck. So are my legs. No one can tell me where the rocket men went, why I'd been spared. I've had better birthdays. Happy birthday, Stephen. Dodo grinned and handed me the package, clumsily wrapped and tied with ribbon. I was just glad she'd stopped singing. Behind her, the doctor chuckled. <laughs> I think Stephen regrets letting us in on the date's significance. He patted the squat machine he'd just been operating, his astral map, he'd called it. After our adventures in the far future, the Toymaker's realm, the Old West, random times and places, it had been strange to live one day after another all those months in Russia. I'd almost felt settled. But we were back to our old ways now, and when the doctor had told us we'd landed, Dodo had said she just wished she knew what day it was. He'd seemed offended, but really, I think he relished the challenge. If you insist on being so parochial, child, I do have something. 
He disappeared from the control room, returning moments later, wheeling this contraption ahead of him. What is it? I asked. He flicked a switch and the display sparkled with pinpricks of light. My astral map. It can plot the Earth's current position in orbit around your sun. Hmm? You mean you can tell what time of year it is there? Dodo was impressed. More than that, child, I can tell you the exact date. He peered at the screen, tapped some keys, and wagged a triumphant finger in the air. Hmm, yes, yes, the 10th of February. Ha, I don't believe it. What's wrong? Dodo asked. Oh, nothing's wrong, it's just... That's my birthday. <laughs> I don't suppose you know the year, Doctor. That is not this machine's purpose. The ship has a number of temporal measuring devices. They require calibration and alignment. I didn't think so. But it's your birthday! Dodo was more excited than either of us. We should do something. Doctor, have you anything we could give him as a present? This is a space-time vessel, not a gift stall in Petticoat Lane. Oh, oh very well. Uh, the lockers by the food machine. You may find something appropriate in there. Hmm? Dodo had raced off into the corridor. I turned to the doctor. Birthdays don't really mean that much when you're used to space travel. You probably know that better than me. Time is relative. Birthdays are for relatives and friends. <laughs> Humor the girl, Stephen. So, that's what I did. A few minutes later, Dodo had returned, and I'd been treated to my song and present. Aren't you going to open it? She insisted. It was a small red leather-bound book. The cover was embossed with gilt numbers, one, nine, six, seven. A diary? Next year's, said Dodo. Maybe for you. I was about to point out how useless it was. How could you keep a diary when you never knew when you'd arrive next? I stopped myself. Thank you, that's very thoughtful. So what do you want to be when you grow up? Dodo teased. Don't be cheeky. I've been lots of things already. A cadet, a pilot, a soldier. Stephen Regret, tenor. She asked how old I actually was. That depends on the TARDIS. Sometimes I'm ancient, others I haven't been born. So, Doctor, where have you brought us on the 10th of February in this mystery year? Well, shall we view our surroundings? Eh? The scanner flickered and showed a terrain of sand and rock. An Earth colony, designated Ulysses V something or other. I knew the Ulysses colonies. It piqued my curiosity. I tucked the diary into my back trouser pocket and joined the doctor at the TARDIS controls. He ducked below the console and produced three silver canisters. The air's a little thin. Put these on. They'll keep us topped up. Dodo and I both took one. There was a, a grill round the middle of each cylinder. Oxygen vents, I guessed. They were on cords and we followed the doctor's lead, hanging them round our necks. He opened the TARDIS doors. Another frontier, eh? Let's see how they're getting along, hmm? I like to keep things simple. We'd heard about the mess on Jobis last year. Idiot. Ashman had got greedy. Now a dozen crews were fighting over his territory. Keep it simple, and a small outfit like ours could do well. 
colony worlds were best. On the back foot from the start. No shelter, no protection worth a damn, and a steady stream of supplies. Easy pickings. Ulysses 519, Outpost Kappa 537. Barely been settled a month. Our inside man at the freight line had tipped us off. Prefabs were ten a penny, but the tech stuff was worthwhile. Oxygenators, terraform rigs, seeds and minerals. They were like gold dust. Oh yeah, gold dust too. I checked the readout. Galactic Protectorate was still a day away. But another cargo run was coming. Passing the moon, preparing for entry. Got him, Wallace. The freight lines wanted to keep costs down, so they used rookies straight from flight school. Fine if it all ran smooth, but any trouble? The gunships were in position, Wallace said. He wanted Ramirez to take one. The kid was too green. Couldn't trust him with a ship. Could even trust him with a blaster. I'd seen him hanging back in the last raid. Needed testing, that boy. The fighters were in the moon's shadow a few hundred K from our transporter. Aim of the game was to get him to ditch, then we'd pick him clean. Okay, boys, let's see what he's brought us. So, where is everyone? Dodo asked. We'd left the TARDIS and were walking across the sand towards a red rocky mountain ridge. And why have they left all this stuff lying around? Yes, I'd have thought they might at least have made a start. The plane was scattered with prefab habitation modules, the sort of thing I transported all over the system, lived in for a while. But these were unbuilt, still shackled together, just as they'd have been when they arrived. Hmm, it is most unusual. Perhaps the project has been abandoned for some reason. Maybe they're hiding from something, Dodo suggested. I've met a few colonists, Believe me, they don't scare easily. It took a certain type of person to give up everything for a life with no guarantees. They were brave, foolhardy even, but I respected them. Pioneers, extending the reach of the human race. Look, called Dodo, pointing at a gap in the ridge. Two men in grubby fatigues were observing us, trying to hide between the rocks. Hey! You there! As soon as I shouted, they ducked away. I think young Dodo could be right. They may have reason to fear the open. Over that way, my boy! The doctor pointed along the ridge. There, at the base of the mountain, were the remains of a colony-class transporter. At first glance, I hadn't even recognized it as a ship. But now I saw the markings on the fragments of its hull. It had been blown to pieces on the ground. A big grizzled man emerged from the rocks. He wore the same grey fatigues as the others, but with an insignia on his shoulder. Here! Get under cover! We hurried to join him at the cave mouth. Shoot you down too, did they? He shook the doctor's hand, then mine and Dodo's with a bear-like grip. Bill Carson, colony commander. I am the doctor, and this is Stephen and Dodo. Who was it? Who did that to your ship? The doctor nudged me on, bustling Dodo into the cave ahead of us. Let us save our questions until we're safely inside. Don't you agree, Mr. Carson? 
The colonists notice the air canisters around our necks. Nifty little breathers you've got there. Might come in handy. Come on. Leading us through the tunnel, Carson confirmed the planet's atmosphere was breathable, but sparse. Not good for extended exposure. They'd an oxygenator in the caves, but needed more to create a habitable area outside. We reached a large cavern where the colonists had made makeshift camp. Fold-away beds and scraps of technology filled the space. Besides the oxygenator, I recognized a communications station surrounded by tangled cables. They'd spent four weeks holed up here, hiding. Like I said, I didn't think colonists were easily scared. There were 50 of them in all, including half a dozen kids, all around Dodo's age. Carson introduced one as his daughter, Carla. She'd long dark hair, her father's deep brown eyes. She nodded shyly to the doctor and to me. Dodo greeted her like a long lost sister. She made an instant connection, quizzing Carla about her explorer lifestyle. I envied her that easiness. The two girls headed for the habitation tunnels. Don't stray too far, child! A bearded technician rushed to the oxygenator and began making adjustments. That machinery does not sound healthy. Let me take a look, Mr. Carson. While the doctor busied himself, Carson told us more. Fifteen families, along with some specialized technicians, had volunteered. They were supposed to prepare the colony for hundreds arriving in six months' time. Only, they hadn't got started. Day after day, they'd been besieged by a faceless enemy. Vital supplies were stolen, mostly before they reached orbit. We can help, can't we, Doctor? Do something about these raiders of yours. Uh, yes, my boy, we can certainly try. Um, what do you know about them, these uh, pirates? Carson told us. They were the rocket men. Immediately, the doctor's demeanor changed. No, you should stay here. Wait for assistance. We can't just let them take whatever they want. That is exactly what we must do. I know these rocket men of old, not just by reputation. Criminal gangs marauding through this area of time and space. Huh? They are brutal, amoral bandits. They could kill everybody here without a second thought. That made me angry. That's why we should stand up to them. You're not the only one who's met them before. Stephen, my boy, these people aren't soldiers. It would be foolish to try. I turned to Carson. What have you got in the way of weapons? He shrugged and pointed to a corner of the cave. Only what we brought. I saw two pulse rifles. Not enough. Precisely. Now stay here, keep out of their way. Let them take the material goods. They can be replaced. Your people cannot. Carson shook his head. Trouble was, the Protectorate wouldn't arrive till tomorrow. Their oxygenator might not last another hour. Then let me see if I can repair it. I'm a doctor of science. A simple air conditioning system shouldn't be too taxing a challenge. Then we can be on our way. Before I could argue, Carla and Dodo ran in. He's here, Carla cried. He made it. Dodo, I trust you've not ventured outside. Dodo was as breathless as Carla. 
We watch from the cave mouth doctor, diving, dodging, looping the loop. He's an amazing pilot. He landed outside. He'd done it. He'd beaten the ambush. The doctor and I walked into the open with Carson. The girls ran ahead with some of the colonists to greet the new arrival. I recognized the ship, the sort of thing I flew for a living right after flight school. I'd been in one when I met the rocket men. The memory itched at the back of my mind, but only made me more determined. It sounds like he pulled off some impressive aerobatics. Dodo's young friend says the pursuers flew off into space as soon as he broke through. I would not think they'd give up so easily. Hmm. The doctor glanced worriedly up at the sky for a moment, then he strode forward. Attached to the flyer's stern were four linked cargo pods, standard issue, recycled throughout the freight lines. Featureless grey boxes, each one could hold 60 transport crates. They were old, titanium tiles loose or missing here and there, burnt off by one too many careless re-entries. The pilot walked to the rear of his flyer. I caught a glimpse of his face. Well done, sir. You've brought hope to these people, as well as something more practical. Hmm? The first pod was open and the colonists were bringing out supplies. They dragged a bulky piece of equipment across the sand. Another oxygenator. You may not need my help after all, Mr. Carson. Quickly, get it under cover. Taylor? The pilot was looking over, staring. Taylor? Is that you? I felt like a ghost in my own past. His name was Ford. He'd flown freight for years. Unlike most of us, he'd never moved on. I knew him by sight from a few jobs we'd done. He'd been on that final run, the Ulysses cargo. I knew exactly what year it was. He was asking what had happened to me. He kept staring at my face. I could see in his eyes he knew something wasn't right. Sorry, Ford. It, it's difficult to explain. An ominous shadow spread over the ridge. A massive bronze ship hove into view, high above, growing larger by the second. Carson urged his people back. They dropped the supplies and ran. Explanations could wait, said Ford. The rocket men were coming. We needed to stash the supplies. He opened the final cargo pod. Mining equipment, blast guns, weapons. Above us, the ship descended. I could make out the lines of six hatches along its hull. We can do better than that. We can fight back. I've seen it before. Fools. Wanted to have a go. There they were, scurrying about on the sand, instead of running and hiding. I took my group out before the final approach. I'd seen where these rats had holed up. Wallace stayed on board, while the rest targeted the supplies. That cocky pilot. Ramirez went with them. I still wasn't sure. He'd come to join up on our last R&R on Valiant Major. Wallace had been keen. Great strategist, Wallace, but a soft touch. I signalled my men. We fired our rockets to slow our descent. They want to have a go, do they? Then let's give them something to lose. We had them. 
the 11 rocket men who'd come for the cargo. We'd left the oxygenator out in the open as bait, waited till they were close, then burst from our hiding places in the prefabs. This time, the colonists had weapons. We had them surrounded. Hand over your blasters. Ford Carson and I disarmed them. The blank visors were unnerving. They didn't say a word. That's a lot, called Ford. What do we do with them now? Carson wondered. I nodded to the prefab where we'd hidden. We could lock them in there. I hope you all know what you're doing. The doctor had been hovering by the cargo pods, checking the contents. I gave him a wave. Don't worry, doctor. We've done it. We've won. He didn't respond. He was looking past us towards the mountain. A look of horror spread across his face. Twenty rocket men rose from the ridge behind us. Every one held a prisoner. They'd taken the women and children from the cave. Stephen! Doctor! It was Dodo. She was struggling, hands and feet bound, clamped in a vice-like grip under the leader's arm. Ha! Rookie mistake. Leaving your home front unguarded. Well, badly guarded. He waved to a body sprawled at the cave mouth below, the aircon technician. The leader descended. He drew a weapon from the holster at his side. An antique projectile weapon, a compact seven-shooter. Smith and Wesson. My blood ran cold. You're animals, Ford snarled at him. Worse than animals. Ha <laughs> ha! Can animals do this? Without a second's hesitation, the rocket man raised his pistol. Ford fell dead to the ground. The leader rested his gun barrel against Dodo's head. No! Stephen, my boy, don't move! You're no good to Dodo full of bullets! Listen to Grandpa. You men, get your weapons back from these cave rats. The men who moments ago had been our prisoners took back their guns and relieved us of our own. All except one, he stood hesitantly apart from the others. The leader waved his pistol in my direction. Ramirez, that one's a ringleader. Kill him. The rocket man stepped towards me reluctantly. Ramirez, I remembered the name. As he came within reach, I aimed a punch at his middle. He doubled up and I grabbed for his weapon. No, Stephen! You must not fight them! <coughs> Gloved hands pulled me back, and I was kicked to the ground. Ramirez recovered and called for them to stop. They're unarmed, Captain Van Cleef, he said. I don't think... Get that helmet off. You're not fit to wear it. The captain, Van Cleef, steered to hover beside Ramirez. Dodo writhed under his arm, and he passed her to his men on the ground. He reached out and ripped the crested visor from Ramirez's head. He was a boy, unshaven, beard nothing but fluff, scared. He can't have been 20. Van Cleef rose into the air and threw the helmet onto the rocks. He took aim. The boy began to run. A lesson, lads, for those who'd follow me. This is what disobedience gets you. Dodo screamed. The doctor stepped forward. That was unnecessary! Have some mercy, Captain! Take the equipment! 
but no more bloodshed, hmm? Van Cleef ignored the doctor. He put a hand to his visor. As I later discovered, the helmets have internal radios. He answered an unheard message. Copy that, Wallace. Another one on the way. Van Cleef grabbed Dodo again, and with her firmly under his arm, rose into the air. You think this is all about the spoils, old man? If it were, I'd take this oxygenator. But just to let you know how disappointed I am. He signaled his men on the ground. They followed him into the air, pointing their blasters at the precious equipment. Fire! Stephen, my boy, run! I struggled to my feet and raced after Carson and the others, fleeing towards the caves. High above us, the rocket men carried the prisoners up to their waiting ship. When do you know you have to make a stand? It was my fault. My fault Dodo had been taken. The doctor had wanted to stay out of trouble and leave, but I'd insisted we fight. It wasn't going to happen again. Katerina, Brett, Sarah, Oliver, Semyon, now Ford, my friends. I'd lost them all. Not again. Not this time. I knew. I remembered. I'd been there. You're certain, Stephen? The doctor passed me the helmet that had belonged to Ramirez. Down one side was a jagged crack from its impact on the rocks. I have to do this. I'll get her back to you somehow. Goodbye, doctor. Stephen! I lowered the visor, fastened the straps of the rocket pack, and pulled on the thick leather gloves. I climbed into the cockpit of Ford's ship and closed the hatch. The realization had formed, crystallized. Now it was solid and cold like ice in my mind. It wasn't just Dodo I had to save. There was a pilot up there too, a young pilot who'd been saved by a man in a rocket suit. And then he'd watched that rocket man die. I'd save them, even if it's the last thing I'd do. When do you know it's time to go? Sometimes you don't get to choose. Any vessel, anything that carves its way through the skies, it leaves a trail. 
And in the emptiness of space, a trail of burnt fuel or ionized atoms is simple to track. But I knew where I was going. Ulysses 519 has six satellites of various sizes and orbits, but I already knew which one the rocket men had made their base. It was less than an hour's flight from the colony planet's surface to its largest moon. Like Titan, back in the home system, it was an oversized, low-gravity satellite with its own atmosphere of sorts. It was where they'd shot me down. Years ago, from my perspective, in about 20 minutes' time from theirs. Another flyer was on its way. One of the last. We had to move out soon anyway. We'd less than a day before their protectorate arrived. Too late, as usual. They normally sent the organics on the final runs. Seed pods, cultures and cuttings for food crops, atmospheric enhancers. They fetch the best prices on the outer rim if you keep them fresh. I signal the fighter pilots. Intercept course, you two. You better shoot this one down, or the next flight you'll be taking, you'll be strapped to the hull of your ships. We followed in the transporter. Wallace gave me an earful. Said I hadn't given Ramirez a chance. I gave him more than he deserved. The boy was a liability. Correction had been a liability. But he'd served a purpose in the end. You had to keep reminding them who was in charge. And the harsher the lesson, the better. You couldn't rest easy. Not when you spent your days surrounded by cutthroats and pirates. I knew. After all, that's how I'd made captain. I was closing in. I slowed the thrusters, pulled back to a safe distance, careful not to get too near the wake of the rocket men's transporter. I'd gambled that they weren't expecting anyone to follow and wouldn't be monitoring the stern too closely. They'd be far too busy looking for the Stephen Taylor in the other ship. The 21-year-old pilot, fresh out of flight school. The one who was about to spend months in a field hospital seeing the soldiers and airmen being brought in from the war. The one who'd return to Earth, visit the ruins of New York, sign up to the military, make a stand. No, I wasn't worried about them spotting me. I'd make it up there somehow, because I knew that I had to. Stephen? Uh, are you receiving? Stephen, uh, do you hear me, my boy? Doctor, what are you doing? You need to maintain radio silence. The rocket men will hear... I'm testing the capabilities of this communication device. In any case, Mr. Carson has asked me to tell you that some of the women are competent pilots. His daughter, too. Now, if there are other ships up there, they might be able to help bring everyone back. That's good to know. Now, please, Doctor, I have to go. I didn't want to tell him what I knew, what I'd already seen. There were other ambushed flyers on the rocket men's moon but they were write-offs. This was the only space-worthy ship and, well, I wouldn't be flying it back. 
But at least now I knew if I got the prisoners away from the rocket men back to the ship, somebody else could. I'm working on a distraction of my own. C cruel they may be, but these rocket men are not blessed with our intelligence. We must use that advantage. I'm right behind them, Doctor, approaching the moon. I have to cut transmission. Thank you, Doctor, for everything. Stephen, please, you must... I was alone. Again. I had to spend the time I had left wisely, work out a way to free Dodo and the others. I wore the uniform I'd taken from the dead rocket man, Ramirez. It was undamaged. Van Cleef was a good shot. I'd put the brown leather coveralls on over my own clothes, I'd retrieved the cracked helmet from the rocks where it had been thrown. I wore the rocket pack. Leaving the planet's atmosphere, I'd set the ship to automatic and disconnected the chest pad to see how it worked. The fist-sized panel sat high in the centre of the body, with cables running over the shoulders into the large backpack holding the rocket. The controls comprised two switches, four buttons and a dial in the centre. The dial regulated the flow of fuel. The other controls balanced the mix from the tanks. One a high-octane gas, the other a slower-burning liquid. Different button and switch combinations opened and closed the valves and ignited the mixture. A simple system, but an effective one. It allowed for fine-tuning and relied on the user's own body movement for directional control. Newton's third law. That's all you needed to fly. The thing to bear in mind would be the moon's low gravity. I was getting close. I could make out the craters on the moon's surface. I'd almost caught them up. There. The transporter banked to the left. I'd been waiting to see which way they went. My intention was to head around the moon in the opposite direction. I turned right, leveled out close to the surface. I flew low, skimming the bumps and wells of the craters. This was what I'd trained for. This was what I was good at. Cargo vessel down. Well done, boys. You live to fly another day. They'd shot this one down, no problem. A rookie. Not an overgrown flyboy like the last one. I looked at the view from the porthole. It sat below. Cargo, there for the taking. Wallace arrived. What is it? He told me the prisoners were ready, issued with their oxy packs. The men had started squabbling already. We couldn't keep them on board. Needed to keep them fresh for the labour markets on Gavalax Prime. Once we'd emptied one of those pots, we could pack them inside and seal them up till they were ready for sale. Cover the cost of the air supplies a hundred times over. I rubbed my calf. I'd be glad to be rid of that dark-haired little spitfire who'd give my shins a kicking. She'd probably fetch quite a fee. The doors were opening. We were in range. I strapped on my rocket pack and headed to the hatches. Once the rocket men started jumping from their ship, I left my vantage point at the edge of the crater and moved towards them. There was an air tube inside the helmet which fitted below my nostrils. 
It explained how they'd made the approach from the upper atmosphere, how they moved so easily on the moon. I'd left Fordship in the crater behind me. Apart from the newest arrival, the ship flown by my younger self, there were four other crashed vessels in the rocket men's crater. None of them would fly again. I got accustomed to the rocket controls, flying alongside as their transporter landed. To those emerging, it looked like I'd come out of one of the other hatches. I adjusted the dial carefully. Too much thrust in this gravity would take me out into space. I didn't want to look like an amateur, not when I was surrounded by professional killers. Some were already moving cargo pods across the surface. Their two gunships had landed nearby, and I could see that they were planning to use them for their original purpose and hook the loaded boxes to their sterns. Everyone seemed to know the tasks they'd been assigned. Nobody paid me much attention as I moved in amongst them. I tapped a button just inside my visor, and the internal radio crackled into life. Open up all of the pods. Leave the prefabs. Get me an empty one for the prisoners. I listened to the commands and joined a group working on the hatch of the final pod linked to my old ship. I daren't look at the flyer. My younger self was hunched inside, scared, wondering what to do, coming to a decision. They'd fixed a clamp to the hatch lock, a code breaker. In seconds, it cycled through the combinations before finding the right one, and they were inside. I helped unload crates of organic supplies. I remembered loading them myself on the eve of my birthday all those years ago. Stay in there and you won't get hurt. Not until we're ready for target practice. <laughs> Once we'd emptied the pods, they were disconnected by the code-breaking clamp and dragged across the dusty rocks to the Rocketman's flyers. They worked quickly, efficiently. I was almost impressed. The prisoners were brought out of the transporter. I saw Dodo, Carla and the others being herded towards me. They'd all been given oxygen masks, but some struggled in the atmosphere, clutching their masks as they took slow, tentative steps in the low gravity. Hold her! Stop her! There was a commotion at the edge of the group. Someone had broken free and was running across the crater in great bounding leaps. It was Dodo, of course. The guards were drawing their blasters. I had to get to her first. No, wait! She's not worth anything dead! I ran past my fellow rocket men and jumped, diving forward. There was one blast from a weapon, spraying dust in my path. I heard the shouts to hold fire. Just before I hit the ground, lying almost parallel to the surface, I punched the controls. I twisted my body to steer. I sped over the white-pitted rock of the crater, just as I had in my ship. He'll get her! He's there! Dodo screamed as I drew alongside and grabbed her waist. I hissed in her ear. Dodo, don't say a thing. It's me, Stephen. Now just listen. Oh, Stephen, she began, then quickly clamped her mouth shut. Wait in the pod till they're gone. You need to wait for at least half an hour. Can you do that? Dodo bit her lip and nodded. I'll detach your pod from the others so you won't be taken when they leave. The internal hatch code is S. T-1-0-0-2. Zero, zero, Once you're certain they're gone, open it. 
There's an undamaged ship in that crater. Carla will know who can fly it. Can't you stay with us? Where will you be? She whispered. Shh, we're back. Just behave yourself this time. No more running. We'll get a good price for this one. I pushed her into the pod with the others. They were packed in tight with barely room to move. Their guard slapped me on the back in congratulation and threw a few spare air cans into the pod. Dodo's tear-stained face stared out as the hatch swung across. I thought she gave the smallest of nods as it closed. I hoped she had. Overseeing operations, observing the escape and recapture, the tall figure of Van Cleef stood by the transporter doors. I heard him over the radio. What do you mean, 40,000K? I thought the Protectorate was a day away. His second in command seemed sure. There was an official gunship well within range of Ulysses 519, and it was closing fast. At that rate, they'll be here within the hour. Hurry it up! There was more activity by the cockpit of the flyer. I didn't look. Another rocket man jetted over to the captain. I knew what he was reporting. He has, has he? Hold him there. I feel like hitting something. Van Cleef rose into the air and headed over the containers towards the flyer. His men gained even greater urgency in their work. The final pods were sealed and connected, and they began to move back to their transporter. I saw my chance and slid into the gap between the end cargo pod, holding the prisoners and its neighbour. I didn't have the pirate's combination cracking clamp to unhook its connection, but then I didn't need it. I knew the release code because I'd set it myself. There. The prisoner's container was free. I'd done all I could. I sank to the ground, wedged uncomfortably between the two pods. Then I heard the radio. I told you, you should have stayed inside! You went beyond the ears, boy. No combat training. I pressed the switch to shut it off. I knew the atmosphere couldn't carry the sound, but I still heard the impact of every brutal blow. I ran my glove over the battered titanium tiles, knowing at least that Dodo was safe inside. I shifted and felt the diary beneath me. I loosened the belt straps of the rocket suit and reached inside to pull it out. Dodo's gift, 1967. <laughs> the future to her, but to me, a long distant past I never got to see. I flicked through the pages, stopping at the 10th of February. Today, the day I was born, and the day I'd die. Not in the war, not on Mechanus, not even on Grace alone. I remembered Oliver making his stand, in spite of what history said, in spite of what the doctor said. The doctor, I hadn't even told him what I knew, that my end, would be here, today, on some nameless moon. I can't let Dodo down, but how can I be sure? That was my right leg. That was my left. I can't let myself down either. I'm over there now, in need of help. Too late. Time's up.
All cargo stowed. Flyers ready. You worry too much, Wallace. We'll still beat them. Though I don't know how they got here so fast. Gonna have to give you some lessons on tracking and monitoring. Just shut it, Wallace! Ramirez was no good. He had to go. I said, shut it! I'm done here. I'll be right over to tan your sorry hides. No time for sleeping, boy. Let's finish this. Van Cleef's gone for now. My impact sent him spinning several meters over into the next crater. I know what I need to do, but I've so little time. I see my younger self lying in agony below my feet. First, I get him into the cockpit as quickly and painlessly as I can. As I lift him, the hairs on my neck tingle beneath the helmet. It's like I feel a connection through my thick leather gloves, through his padded spacesuit. I lower him into the pilot's seat. Then I find the med kit and open it. I spray antiseptic sealant foam over his injuries. It'll stop him from bleeding to death from the bullet holes. <laughs> I remember what they said back at the medical base when I insisted I hadn't sealed the wounds. They assumed I must have done it myself. Well, they were right, in a way. I remove his useless oxygen mask and switch on the ship's emergency supply. Two days worth should be more than enough. Then I close the hatch and get myself out before it seals. I see my younger eyes flicking open inside the cockpit. He can't see mine beneath my visor, but then he's not looking at me. He's looking past me. And I remember what's coming. I almost get out of his way, but the blow from Van Cleef knocks me off balance. He falls, but he's under control and I'm not. I punch the rocket pad, but even as I recover and turn to face him, I know he's had time to aim. Thought I'd killed you down on the planet, Ramirez. Never had to kill a man twice before. I've done what I had to do. Saved the past, saved the present. He'll get to visit all those times and places, do all the things I've done with the Doctor. He'll become me. I'll save myself. Again. Van Cleef aims his gun at my heart and squeezes the trigger. I'm ready. Do I believe in ghosts? I don't know. I'm on the ground, so I don't need to counter the recall. I fire point-blank into the Phantom's chest and he jerks back and floats up into space. Seems dead enough to me. But then, that's what I thought the first time I killed him. The crack across the helmet, from where I threw it and the rocks. Maybe I just winged him back on the colony. But I never miss. I'm about to go back to the boy in the flyer when I hear the transporter's engines. What's going on, Wallace? I said I was coming. Hold your position. I look round. My men are all gone. I'm alone on this rock. I hit my rocket pad and turn back to the ship. It's still rising. What the hell are you doing, Wallace? This is mutiny. Just you. I'm falling again. Struck down and tumbling like a piece of space debris across the moon. As I spin, I see my ship gather speed and shrink away. It's 
two flyers follow, but they've left the cargo pod behind. The prisoners. I look around to see what's hit me. The ghost is back! Again! He comes straight at me. His shoulder smashes into my middle, knocks the air from my lungs. He carries me backward. His spine jars with pain as he rams me against the flyer beside the cockpit glass. He holds something under my chin and there's an antiseptic smell as my helmet fills with expanding foam. I can't breathe. I undo the straps and tear the visor from my head. I force the air tube back under my nose. The Phantom removes his visor too. I know now. It's not the ghost of Ramirez. I look at the face and look down through the glass. The boy in the cockpit is him. Older. A ghost from the future. You don't get to kill anyone else today, Van Cleef. My gun's in my hand. It's in between us and it's pointing at his guts. He's still playing Russian roulette. It's him or me. I flick both switches on his rocket controls, turn the dial to maximum, hit the four buttons together. They flash red, and he looks at me again in disbelief. I step away. I raise my pistol to his face. Surely this time. Wait. Back in my cabin. Did I reload? Flames burst from his rocket and Van Cleef shoots upwards. He leaves a trail of streaming sparks which flicker and fade in his wake. I see him punch frantically at the chest pad, but there's no way to reverse the momentum. Complete fuel discharge, Newton's third law. In this moon's gravity, it's more than enough to take him to the edge of space and beyond. He leaves a silver smear across the black sky as he heads to the stars. Stephen! Oh, Stephen! Dodo fell out of the pod and into my arms. I didn't know how long to wait, and I wasn't sure I'd remembered the code, and I didn't know which crater you meant, but everything's all right because you're here! You're here! Her garbled words turned to sobs and I hugged her tight. Behind her, Carla and the other colonists edged forward, oxygen masks still covering their faces. Stephen? Dodo stepped away, staring at the bullet hole in the leather on my chest. Thanks for the present, Dodo. It was just what I wanted. I unfastened a buckle and took the diary from its place inside my suit, from the left breast pocket of the shirt beneath. Dodo put a hand to her mouth. Stephen, you've been shot. Yes, I know. But as luck would have it, I knew exactly where I'd get hit. What do you mean? She asked. Dodo took the book from me and looked at its cover. There was a neat hole right through the gilt six of 1967 and through the pages beneath. She opened the diary and a crumpled bullet fell out from somewhere in December. How did you know? She asked. I realized after I'd locked you in. 
I wasn't entirely sure it would be thick enough. The bullet would have less resistance in this atmosphere and the lower gravity wouldn't slow it down, so I took out some extra insurance. A titanium tile fell from inside the diary's back cover. I'd prized it from the cargo pod's exterior as I heard Van Cleef shooting my younger self. Happy birthday to me. A most ingenious solution, though I say so myself. <laughs> to use the surrounding moons like an echo chamber. The doctor was showing me how he'd fooled the rocket men, tricked them into thinking the Galactic Heritage Protectorate were almost upon them. Galactic Heritage? asked Dodo. Who are they? You are aware of an organization, the, uh, um, the National Trust? They were active in your time, were they not? Yes, but they looked after old buildings and forests and things. Well, Galactic Heritage is similar, only a little more aggressive. Hmm? The Protectorate is their armed division. He pointed to the radio dish that had been rigged high on the ridge. Cables trailed all the way down from its base, some into the cave mouth, others into the TARDIS. The ship had been dragged closer to the caves and its welcoming blue doors stood open. I was able to relay the Protectorate's signals. I used the ship to boost them and then direct them at the second and fourth moons. The precise angle of refraction allowed us to shape an image onto the smaller fifth moon, make it appear as if the transmissions were coming from there. Hmm? They thought the fifth moon was the Protectorate ship. The rocket men have this fearsome reputation as raiders, hmm? but first and foremost, they are bullies. And like any bully, fundamentally, they're cowards. Dodo understood. She nodded. You mean if they think there's someone bigger in the playground, they'll run away? Carson joined us. Carla was with him, her father's protective arm around her shoulders. She smiled at me. Back on the moon, once I'd bought Ford's ship and connected the prisoner's container, she and Dodo had joined me in the cockpit. Carla had helped guide us into land. She had the makings of a good pilot. Carla Carson, Dodo had said. You even sound like a space captain. The girl's father looked pointedly at the doctor. Have you asked him? He said. Ah, ah yes, uh, Stephen, my boy. Mr. Carson wishes to ask your uh, permission for something. The colony leader stepped forward. Kappa 537 doesn't trip off the tongue. Others will be coming soon. As founding fathers, we're allowed to name the first outpost. We wondered, could we name it after you? What? Dodo laughed. You can't call it Stevenage. Carson threw her a puzzled look. We'd be honored to be the first citizens of Taylor's Stand. Whew, I, I don't know what to say. Quite some distinction, my boy, to have a city named after you. Families will be raised here, people will be born and laid to rest. The beginnings of a civilization, and they will all know your name. An honor, one that's most assuredly deserved. I can think of someone more deserving. I looked over to where the colonists were digging three long trenches in the sand. I never knew his first name. 
Ford's Rest. That sounds like a fine, strong, frontier town. Carson followed my gaze and slowly nodded. Well, if it's uh, good enough for you, Pilot Taylor, if you really want to use my name, save it for when Carla here sets up her first flight school. I hope you do well, Commander. So do I, Pilot. So do I, Carson saluted. Dodo gave Carla a hug pioneer led his daughter back towards the activity around their new constructions. The doctor placed a hand on my shoulder. There was a look in his eyes, something like pride, but sadness too. What did he know? Just in case I never get another chance to say it, I'm proud of you, my boy. But I don't want to stop you fulfilling your potential. Uh, perhaps it's time you stood on your own two feet. You don't want to trail after this foolish old man forever. I began to protest, but the doctor was already bustling Dodo back to the TARDIS. Then he stopped. He turned, his finger tapping his chin as if a thought had just occurred to him. That other ship on the moon, after I contacted you, the pilot sent a Mayday transmission. A young fellow from the sound of him? Yes, I made sure he was all right. The protectorate will pick him up tomorrow. But you left him. And is he still all right, I mean? Yes. Yes, I think he is. When do you know? When do you know it's time to move on? When it's the right moment to step away, to take responsibility for your own life? Being part of a team? Looking after the doctor? I'd got used to it. It felt comfortable. But when do you know it's time to let go? I think it's when you begin to ask the question. I think it's nearly time. I'm the producer of the Companion Chronicles, and I've got with me Peter Purvis, who plays Stephen, uh, Tim Trelaw, who plays Van Cleef, brutal psychopathic leader of the Rocket Men. It says here. <laughs> yeah. Um, we've got Matt Fitton, who's the writer. 
and Lisa Bauman, who's the director. Hello. And I have to start with Peter. All right, David. What do you reckon? I love shall, it. Shall we have Matt back? Oh, I, I absolutely love it. I think we've been blessed with superb writers on uh, on this series anyway. And Matt is just a great compliment to all that. A lovely script to work on. Uh, most playable. You know, this is the nice thing. When you're an actor, if the words roll off your tongue, you're absolutely thrilled. Because the words, the words are good. They tell the story beautifully. And you can actually enjoy just playing it. You don't have to worry too much about it. The, the way to play it leaps off the page. Yeah. And I thought, I thought it was a delight. When I first read it, um, and I, I, I mean, obviously, this interview may well be heard by people before they've actually listened to the story. So I don't want to give anything away. But when I first read it, the first um, sort of 10 minutes, I was like, where the hell is this going? I don't get this. <laughs> and, and it falls into place so beautifully. Gradually, you put it together. And it doesn't finally come totally told until the very end. And it's, I, I think it's quite remarkable. I mean, of, often the, this is the way that they work. But I, I'm absolutely thrilled. It's been lovely to work for him. Thank you very much, Matt. Aww. The way I look at the script, when I when I get it first, I I do read it slowly. I'm not mm. not a quick read, mm-hmm. and uh, I do try to characterize it as I'm going, which is often uh, I often change it, but that's how I how I get through it. <laughs> so I, I probably read several bits more than once as I was going through, but the overall piece just came very clear, and I think certainly the way Lisa's directed it. Um, she gets absolutely the most out of uh, myself and Tim, no question about that. And and it, it, it makes the clarity of the story wonderful because it's a complex one. It's a, it's mm. a beauty. Mm. I love it because it's a... It's not absurd. It's totally anachronistic, and it's it's, it's just it's it, it's very very clever. I'm I'm madly impressed. I couldn't write one of these to say. <laughs> now I'm going to go to Tim, brutal psychopathic leader of the Rocky Men. <laughs> giving away all I was going to say about the character. <laughs> so how would you describe the character? Um, I'd say he's brutal psychopathic leader of the Rocket Men. It'd be the sort of yeah character description I get. Now yeah. It does what it says on the tin, really. It's fantastic piece of storytelling from Matt. Um, I love the Wild West-style element. It's a bit of spaghetti western baddie in there, um, which you probably guess from the name anyway. <laughs> if I, I don't know if I'm allowed to say that. But it's great, and it's obviously a pleasure working with him. Yeah, and um, obviously with the, the legend that is um, Peter. Oh, keep and talking, of course, Jim, keep Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, big, big... Uh, um, uh, childhood uh, hero of mine. Yeah. I'm not giving away my age there. <laughs> but, uh, I was obviously one of the No, few you're giving mine away. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Peter. Sorry. And obviously a pleasure and a joy to work with Lisa as well for the first time. Yeah. I, I kept on getting recommendations. Going, you can't use I know, this I kept telling you. <laughs> and there are lots of ways you could have gone with this. I mean, did, how, did, how do you decide which way to, to take a um, character? Well, it's because. It, it's it was it's not a, I wouldn't say it's a cartoon baddie, but it is almost in a lot of ways. It's a standard. Am I saying the right thing, man? <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking across the man. Just taking. It's sort of you know a larger than life baddie, so perhaps it did require a, possibly a one of those sort of stereotypically deep gravelly voices to it. Fantastic. I'm going over to Matt, who's the brutal psychopathic writer of this <laughs> this story. Um, so you were picking up from something John Dorney started. 
That's right. I mean, it was quite a daunting prospect to do the sequel to something as so well received as the Rocket Man, the original oh. Rocket Man, and also to follow on um, Simon's run of stories with um, Stephen as well. Uh, but in the, I, I, I decided to sort of embrace the sequelness of it. And one thing I thought worked fabulously well in the Rocket Man was to pick up on the emotional hook of Ian discovering his feelings for Barbara. So I thought. Can I do something similar with Stephen's character? And uh, it just seemed to slot into place that if I put this just before the savages, just before he leaves the TARDIS, there's uh, I think there's a, there's a scene change at the end of the gunfight, so we can slot lots of stories. <laughs> uh, and, and there was, there was um, Mother Russia, one of the earliest um, companion chronicles, which which sort of started picking up on this theme. And uh, I just want to take it take it a bit further and have Stephen sort of wondering about his place in the universe. Mm. And um, in terms of finding the sort of the pitch of the story and doing that time shift kind of thing, what was the inspiration for that? Um, I think that it all sort of stemmed from the first ideas I had were definitely sort of Wild West. It's probably probably influenced by me watching the gunfighters again. <laughs> <laughs> for, for a time, I sort of imagined keeping Stephen in his gunfighters outfit throughout the whole story. But, I'm glad so. you didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I would have found it very embarrassing to play that. <laughs> I would have insisted like you Roy Rogers. <laughs> but once once I'd sort of settled on that theme and and gone with sort of the the the, the bullets uh, motif and the 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 villain having this interest in this sort of old-fashioned weaponry, then it was just a question of sort of fitting the jigsaw to bet together to mm. uh, make everything fit dramatically as well and sort of mm. build build on it and delay the reveal of what's actually happening mm. and uh, as long as possible. And just to pick up something Peter was saying earlier about um, scripts being very speakable, um, I mean, because lots of people can write a story, mm. but actually to write a story that you can you can speak and you can find the nuance and the emotion in and get the you know quite a lot of scripts sometimes we'll get them in and you'll go through it in script editing and just you have to rework it put don't in you? the humanity not, yes yeah but it is it's not even plot. it's not even something you can speak out loud i mean well, i think you have, have to do that you how, have how to do you know how, how do you know as a writer by speaking it out loud mm, I, yeah. think. I think yeah. that you have that's to read it or at least let the voices in your head read it yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's true yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, and but um Peter's voice as Stephen is so distinct, and it's it's been uh, developed and built on so throughout the Companion Chronicles. It's um, I've got him living in my head, <laughs> so I can, oh, I, can, I, can, I can sort of pick that up and and speak it through. And I think making things concise, so however mm. complicated the ideas, if you can express them in a concise way, mm. it, it uh, the, the listeners should be able to follow. I think. Mm. And you're pretty new to this with us at Big Finish, aren't you? I mean, you sort of did one and haven't stopped. And actually, coming coming into studio, I, I learn a lot from coming in and, see, and seeing and hearing the recordings. Is I, I, I sort of learned what works, what doesn't work, and, and uh, how, how to how to write better, I think. Well, Lisa and I were having yeah. this conversation in the car last night. We still are picking up on little yeah, tricks yes. on how to do I things, mean, certainly within the context of Companion Chronicles, every writer has had their own take on the format and, and how to, 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 uh, to, to tell the story. And I think, actually, what we found of the strength with the Companion Chronicles is that it's such a wide format. We can do so many things with it. And it's mm. always slight... I hesitate to use the word experimental because it sounds like it could be off-putting, but, but we've been quite 
lucky with all the variations. So what's next, do we think? Revenge of the Rocket Men? <laughs> I, I, have, I have got a pitch waiting for Revenge of the Rocket Men. <laughs> Fantastic. See you, next, <laughs> see you next year, everybody. Can, Thank uh, you very much. Can Van Cleef come back to life? <laughs> <laughs> it's Doctor Who. Son yeah. of Van Cleef. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Thanks, David.